invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to finish this chapter this morning. And then we're going to begin in chapter 4 next week. Excited to do that. Ephesians chapter 3, let's read verses um, 14 through 21, and we'll have prayer and get started. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Paul writes, for this reason I bow my knees before the before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit and your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him, and this is our focus this morning, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think or according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, as we open this last passage in this uh, glorious third chapter of the book of Ephesians, my heart is so full. Uh, this message is uh, of, of, of your love for us and your strength and your power and your willingness to show us that and to work through us as your church. And just everything that Paul brings together here, that we have the word of truth uh, more perfectly confirmed, that we have everything that we need so that we can tap into all the fullness of who you are, Father, that through faith we have Christ residing in our heart and we're empowered by your spirit and that we can... Uh, not ask ever too much. Oh, we should be such like little children, excited about Christmas Day and asking so much of our parents, and in faith believing that you give it. For those are the works of the saints of old who have gone before us, as we've seen, that their faith was not shortened by what they see in this place, but was lengthened and elongated because they understood the majesty of who you were. Lord, fill our hearts full of that knowledge and truth this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So this last little bit, this now to him who is able, to, God, to the God who is able to do far more abundantly, that's where we get the word hyper from in the Greek, far more abundantly, exceedingly more than anything we ask or think, and it's according to that power that works in us, the power of the Spirit, so that we can give him the glory in the church. If there's one thing that your pastor wants you to know this morning, grasp with your whole heart, with every ounce of your being, everything is the limitless love and infinite power of God. The limitless love and infinite power of God. It's a well that has no end to its depth both in his love and in his power. And as his power is exposed, his love is magnified, and vice versa. Because the two are equal in his characteristics and attributes. Everything God is, does is good, and the better you understand his power, the more you understand the good that he's done to bring you to where you are 
and to where the world is and to what he's going to do and to what's coming. And it's all out of this non-understandable love. I mean, it's, it's a love that surpasses knowledge because his power surpasses our understanding. But the more you can grasp, that's why your pastor wants you to have it in your heart. That's why Paul's praying for it. The more you can grasp that, the more you'll see the glory of God, the fuller your worship is, and the more joy in your life. Who wants a life that's full of more joy? Every mother here wants that for their child this morning, right? Every pastor wants it for their congregation. Every person who knows God wants that and wants to trust him more. This is to God's glory, his limitless love and infinite power. As we set some context this morning, I want you to ask yourself, do you know how God's power works for your good and his glory? Do you know how God's power works for your good and his glory? That's what I want to answer for you this morning. It is the doctrine of the omnipotence of God, the omnipotence, the omnipotence, however you want to say it. That is, he is all-powerful. And grasping it is to begin the grasp, the height, the depth, the breadth, and the width, and the fullness of God. Again, beginning to grasp the omnipotence of God, his power is to understand and grasp more fully the love that surpasses understanding, which is all part of what Paul is putting together here as the fullness of God. This height, this depth, this breadth, this width. We all put God in a box to some extent uh, because we look at things through worldly lenses. But when we get God out of the box and understand who he is in all his fullness, which we can't do on this side of eternity, but boy, can we try through his word. We can worship him and enjoy him more fully. And by the way, that's what the Westminster wants uh, us to know is that the chief end of man is to, to know God and to glorify him forever. And uh, John Piper would add, to enjoy him forever, right? To enjoy him forever. Underline, to enjoy God forever. Because it is joy. It's enjoyment. It is good for the soul. The more we know God, the more we push away the world, the more enjoyment we have in this life because we know the victory and the hope in this life. Man, we look at the world and we look at the news and we look at all that's going on around and we can just be cut off right at the knees. But no need, beloved. Believe God. Understand his power. His infinite love and his endless power uh, bring this knowledge to us. It's not a mistake that these two things, God's limitless love and infinite power, are coupled together in this passage. And that's what helps, helps us understand the fullness of God. For one begets the other. For as one is promoted, the other is magnified. It does not matter which one you should choose, love nor power, As one grows in your heart, the other is magnified, and your whole knowledge of the goodness of God only engenders a more perfect love and worship for him in your heart. Do you understand that? Either way you look, whether you look and understand his power or his love, both grow. So very well, let's begin by setting forth the road we have so diligently traveled over these last few weeks in this section of Ephesians. It's glorious, I believe, and it pertains to knowing and understanding the truth of God. And we are, beloved, as Christians, those who have the knowledge of truth. I can't underline this enough. Because we have the Spirit indwelling us, we have the knowledge of truth. So much of the world doesn't know truth because they do not know God. They will not know God. They refuse to know God, and they cannot know truth. They can know facts, 
But the difference is of knowing facts and knowing truth is wisdom being able to apply the knowledge that you have in any given situation to reality, that becomes wisdom. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if you know not God, you know not truth because all truth is God's truth. You can't satiate that. You can't submit a shortcoming around that. I can't turn that into my teacher with anything less. For me to know and understand truth and to apply wisdom, I have to fear God. That means I know God. That the world does not know God. The fool says in his heart there is no God. And he's not intellectually decapacitated. He's made himself a fool. Scriptural fool is not an intellectual difficulty and not able to know or to learn. It's somebody that refuses to know God. To know God is to find rest in God. And it was in the 4th century that Augustine uh, wrote these words, Our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. Our hearts are restless until we find rest in thee. And he was speaking of God. It would be some 12 hundred years later, John Calvin would come along in the 16th century and write in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, a little, I don't know, 4,000-page book that he wrote about how much he loved God and understood God. It's a treasure trove. He wrote these words, I quote him, a rather lengthy quote, but I think it will help us to understand what the Spirit brings us in the knowledge of God and why we're different from the world. He writes, our wisdom and so far as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of just two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected together by many ties, it is not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. For, in the first place, no man can survey himself without forthwith turning his thoughts towards God in whom he lives and moves and has his being, because it is perfectly obvious that the endowments which we possess cannot possibly be from ourselves. No, that our very being is nothing else than subsistence in God alone. He would say it much simpler if we paraphrase that just, just a little bit. It would say we can't know ourselves until we know God, and we can't fully know God until we fully know ourselves. Okay? On the other hand, he writes, it is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation then to look upon himself. For, such is our innate pride, we always seem ourselves just and upright and wise and holy until we are convinced by clear evidence of our injustice, vileness, folly, and impurity. What Calvin is saying is, is that we can't truly know ourselves until we truly know God. And as we know God, we know ourselves much better. That's why all anthropology needs to start with the truth of God. That's why psychology is as empty as it is today. This is where this passage begins, though, with us knowing God and how that actually practically works out. Paul's prayer is committed. We see there in verses 14 through 16, he said, this is the reason... I bow my knees before the Father. This is why I'm praying, folks, um, because he's the Father from whom every family in the heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. And it is that strengthening of the Spirit, the Spirit's indwelling that empowers man to the truth of God. It is the work of regeneration, beloved. It is salvation, 
the Spirit of God changing us that we first understand and His truth floods our heart, mind, and soul with God's truth and our need for Him. In other words, when we begin to understand who God is, as Calvin was saying, we see Him as holy. We see, uh, and, and as God's Spirit works through the gospel, uh, we see God as set apart, and we see God as holy, and we see God as, as not allowing sin to be near Him. And then wisdom begins to satiate us in our heart because the Spirit's at work there, he changes us so that we can understand that if I can't be where God is, I'm going to be where God's not. And that's not a good place to be, to put it simply. So it's that Spirit's first working in the good news of the gospel that God's holy, I'm not. And that's, there's this gap fixed between God up here and me down here. And boy, the more I look at God and his righteousness, the more I see my unrighteousness. That's what Calvin is saying and what what Augustine is saying, the more I look at the peace and harmony that God has, the more I see the unrest in the world and in my life. And that's where the gospel meets us. And he, the gospel tells us that God can save us through Christ. And that's why Christ was necessarily put on the cross so that he could pay our penalty for sin and, and reconcile us to this holy God and, and that he lived a perfect life, right? And I already know my life's unperfect. He lived a perfect life and then he went to Calvary to pay the penalty that I owed so that I could be reconciled to that holy God and I could have forever bliss and eternity with that God. Not only that, not only does it open a pathway of understanding of who God is, but it opens a pathway of truth to the believer because now, as Paul says in verse 16, he's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel would write these words in chapter 36 Verses 26 and 27, God is speaking to his people. He says, I'll give you a new heart. You see, that's what we need. We've got a fallen nature, a sin nature from Adam. And our nature is sin, and that's all we know. And until God changes our heart, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit, we're going to see that momentarily. Until God changes our heart, we can't understand that truth. But once he does change that, He says, I'll give you a new heart. We begin to understand who God is in our need, right, for Jesus. And a new spirit I'll put within you. That is not the spirit of this world, but the spirit of God who empowers us in our inner man, bringing us truth and knowledge of who he is. And he said, not only that, I'm going to remove that old heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, a changed heart, a heart that can love, a heart that can know truth. A heart that can fear God so that we can have wisdom. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put, this is so great. This is what Paul's talking about in the New Testament. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In other words, the spirit comes into us and gives us the truth of who God is. It makes us capable of overcoming our sin and loving God back. The Spirit of God makes witness to the truth of God in the man of God. Let me read that again. The Spirit of God makes witness to the truth of God in the man or woman of God. Okay? That's why we need the Holy Spirit, because we can't know truth without it. Just flip over a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I've used this passage several times in these sermons, but there's something here that is 
need not pass your understanding. I hope you grasp it with all you are. I hope you grasp it and I hope you see, as I help you just momentarily here this morning, see that that's what's missing in the world. Why the world acts like it does. Why there is murder. Why there is lying. Why there is upheaval, unrest, divorce, hate. Why all these things exist is because people don't know God. They don't know truth. The Spirit of God, though, makes a witness to the truth of God and the man of God. Begin in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians Begin there in verse 6, it says, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. And that's what we all want. Uh, Just make a note here, or maybe for later reading, to read Proverbs 2 and 3. We all want that wisdom that's crying out in the streets, right? Yet among the mature, that is those who have the spirit that are maturing in Christ, we do impart wisdom. They can know more. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or rulers of this age or from rulers of this age, right? It's not a worldly wisdom, but it's a wisdom for God. Verse 7, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God has decreed before the ages for our glory. Uh, The rulers and the people of this age didn't understand this. If they had, they would not have crucified Jesus. They would have known who he was. But as it is written, verse 9, What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man ever imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And that's where I want you to be. I want you to have eyes that can see past the physical and hear past the physical and know past a man that things in your heart and your spirit and your inner man that God's going to do and God's going to perform and through his power and through his love so that that's where you experience the fullness of God. And how do you get those things? Verse 10 very quickly tells us these things God reveals to us through what? The spirit. If you don't have the spirit, you don't have this ability, you don't have the truth of God, you're not maturing in God. And how does the spirit work? The spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. That means even the deep depths of his mind, his power, his love, his goodness. Oh, I would say Paul is according this to the fullness of God, right? Verse 11, for who knows a person's thoughts except that person, spirit of that person which is in him, so also no one can comprehend the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we, and that's why, that's why when, when lost people read their Bible, it doesn't make a lot of sense to them. And that's why somebody, a new Christian, wants the Scriptures. That's why they desire it, because they can get it. Verse 12, Now we have received not the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Jump down to verse 14. He just... Um, fusses this out a little bit more. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly. That's that word foolishness. It's morose in the Greek where we get our word moronic. They're foolishness to him. Paul would go on to say in the first chapter, he's just said that uh, the way God saves people is foolish, that he put his son on the cross. The foolishness of preaching. We don't save people by going in with the military, or we don't pull people out of the pits of hell by political means, but by spiritual means, by preaching the gospel, by preaching God's spirit and getting hearts changed so that they know the truth of God and they come out from there. The natural person, verse 14, does not accept the things of the spirit of God. They're foolishness to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person can judge all things, but it's not to be judged by anyone. Verse 16 For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we, as believers, 
and dwelt by the Spirit have the mind of Christ. Now back to Ephesians, because we see that even Ephesians does bear this truth out, that as the people of God we have the mind of Christ. That is, as I said earlier, the Spirit of God makes witness to the truth of God in the man or woman of God. And it bears this out that we've been given this truth. Verse 8 in chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians, he's lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Do you see that? I would, I would add, if you want to put a note here, Colossians 2, verse 3, that in Christ all the, the store of wisdom and knowledge is stored. And that he's lavished upon us in all wisdom, verse 8, and insight. And he's made known to us the mystery of his will. That is his plan. That is what he has willed, right? That is what he is going to do. That's how he's going to fulfill all of his promises. It's here in scripture and it's the spirit that brings us that. Everything that's according to his purpose he set forth in Christ, verse 10, as the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him and things in heaven and things on earth. All of that has been revealed to the person that has the spirit. They're they're steeped and they're, they're situated, they're strengthened, their foundational hook is the spirit of God that tells them the will of God so they know the power and the fullness of God. Verse 13 there says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth. <laughs> we stand often at the, I didn't get to go yesterday, I'm looking forward to going next week to the, to the Planned Parenthood there in Philly. And we stand and we speak truth to people and they look at us, they throw eggs, they cuss. Uh, they do obscene things because they don't have the Spirit of God. But when they hear this word of truth, right? Verse 13, in him, that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, it was the gospel, the good news of your salvation. You believed, you were sealed, and you were given the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of that inheritance until we take full possession on the day when we stand face to face with God. It is that truth that we have that the world does not have. And in saying that, I say, get as far away from psychology as you can, for there is no truth of God in it. I said that earlier. We live in a psychologized world, a world that is chasing after their own hearts. Follow your own hearts. Do what feels right. Do that all that your heart desires. You can be anything you want to be. Those are great epitaphs, but they have no truth of God in them. And they're full of our society today is full of those half-truths and Much of it comes because we look at the heart as a different part of the human being, but it is the spiritual part. It's not a part that we follow. Jeremiah tells us if we have a biblical understanding of the heart, we all know instantly that we need a new heart, that we need a spirit-indwelled heart. We need one that God takes out the old hard heart and puts in a new soft, fleshy heart. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? That sickness is sin. And it's, uh, it's tainted, everything that we are. It's called the noetic effect of sin during the fall. Uh, we don't even know in some of the ways until God turns us on through the work of his spirit how we're wrong. The world says go to college, learn truth, but there's few colleges that understand truth. Because truth accords with the mind, will, character, and glory of God. If you leave out God, you can't know truth. <laughs> No work of the Spirit in them and no work of the Spirit in most learning institutions. No God means no truth. Uh, I said it before, homo sapien, homo adoron. Homo sapien is thinking man. And um, Aristotle believed that if 
If, we, if every man was just educated, that would make a bunch of men educated and make a virtuous society, but we prove every day that that's just not the so. Uh, the better we educate ourselves, uh, still the worse our culture can become. So it's about understanding who God is and worshiping him as God. It doesn't mean that homo adoron, which, by the way, is worshiping man, doesn't, isn't a smart guy. <laughs> it doesn't preclude that at all. He's thinking man, just like homo sapien, but he's thinking through the truth and the work of God, and he worships God because he has God's spirit. Man must first, as Augustine and Calvin said, agree, uh, both of them, what they said agrees that they have to know God to know truth. This is the great faltering of culture. They believe lies and they do not, um, and do not believe God. As I said, Psalms 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, or he says, no, God. It comes from Satan. It comes from our enemy. Uh, in John 8, 43 and 44, Jesus says these words to the Pharisees there. He says, why do you not understand what I say? He knew why they didn't understand. He was trying to get them to understand. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. And Jesus' word was always true, was it not? Every bit of his word is true, but they couldn't bear to hear it because they didn't believe it. He says, this is why. Verse 44, you're of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Too much of higher learning is a blind leading the blind, as Jesus said. In uh, Luke 6.39, he says, The blind man follows a blind man. They'll both fall into a ditch. But in verse 40, he says, A disciple will never be above his teacher, but when he is fully trained, he'll be like his teacher. And when we fully train disciples under the current knowledge of the day, what we're going to have is a bunch of disciples ending up in the ditch. And you pick anybody. You pick the greats, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Darwin. Pick them all. I don't care which one you pick. But they're all godless men heading one day, even though they know and have great knowledge about this world, they're all heading towards the ditch. But if your teacher is Jesus, beloved, this is the opposite of that. There's no end to the amount that you can learn if you master that teacher. Spirit-filled, successful man has understood that it's in the law of God that he's blessed. Psalms 1 says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sets in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in what? And there's a reason I memorized this psalm. The law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. But listen to what David writes about the man who meditates on God's truth. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Do you see the difference between the world and the spirit-filled man who loves the law of God? You want to be the spirit-filled person that loves the law of God. That's what Paul is saying. That's what he wanted his congregation to understand. That's what he wants you to understand through even the preaching of his words written today. And this is where we move to verse 17. This is where we leave a life of the world and begin to live a life of faith. This is his first transition as a believer receives the Holy Spirit 
and they're changed internally. They're dealing with all this truth and this is all coming into them. And then they jettison into this verse 17. Do you read it there in verse 17? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, and I'll read 18 with it and 19, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints. Do you see how this grows? It begins with the spirits working and empowering the inner man. It it becomes a faith that, that lets Christ dwell and we're rooted in love, right? We're rooted deeply in the love of God and it blows up to understanding and comprehending with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Faith becomes active here as Christ indwells the believer by and through faith. This is where we walk out of the first inklings of, of, of Christianity and, walk, and walk, walk into something greater and that is Christ dwelling in us. There's no more secondary thought here. It begins small, but that's how the seeds of faith work. They're implanted within the inner man. They cannot be stopped until Christ makes his full dwelling in the person. And the word dwelling here is important because it doesn't mean that he just comes to visit on Sunday while you're at church. That's not what this means. It's not that he scheduled a week-long vacation and he stops by your heart for a while just to see how you're doing, beloved. This is an indwelling. This is a dwelling. This is him becoming the master of that residence. Do you see the difference? He's doing something in you. He's building your faith, and it's a movement towards Christian maturity. Paul just talked about that in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6. This is where the mature are imparted even more wisdom through the Spirit. God continues to work. In fact, if you are truly saved, you cannot go backwards here. You will move towards a more matured faith. This is where truth becomes action and theory becomes practice. This is where truth becomes action and theory becomes practice. It is where a childlike faith gives way to an adult-sized proportion of living for Jesus Christ. And this is where we become rooted and grounded in love. And this changes the believer. For as the believer understands that we have peace with God through Christ, we rejoice in the hope of glory and even in the trials of this world because we know that the trials of this life, even the hard days of this life, and produce endurance, character, and this endurance and character, as Paul writes in Romans 5, produces hope. And hope will not put, Romans 5, 5, hope will not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you see how that works? God starts us with the changing of our heart and the empowering of the inner man to begin to understand his truth. And he grows us through faith as Christ resides. And that resounding, that residing becomes something that is is permanent and it moves us, it changes. us. We have new motivations of love and faith, not hate and angst, of trust and tenderness, not doubt and hardness. And our world is hard, beloved. But love can change that hardness. It changed it in you, didn't it? People, people come to me, and, and I've been talking to these folks that want to be baptized, and they say things like, you know, even I don't, I don't want to cuss anymore. I don't want to do the X, Y, or Z that I used to do, and I, I can't completely stop, but now I have a desire not to want to do those things anymore. Where does that come from? And beloved, it comes from love. It comes from love. Because God first loved you, and he's changed your heart, and now you can love him back. And it's this love that pulls us, this 
infinite love that pulls us into the infinite power of God. You know what Jesus said, Deuteronomy, we have in Deuteronomy 6, Mark, Matthew, Luke. It's everywhere throughout the scriptures. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the implication is your neighbor is yourself, right? This love, this type of love is the love where the hardness of the human being is broken down and the hard exterior of the human life is pierced right straight through and it becomes action. Because why? Why? Why does it put us into action? We, as Christians, we don't start in action. We build up to it, kind of, right? I mean, we don't start the first day that we're saved or, or the first things that we do going to you know, foreign missions and foreign lands or doing these things or building a boat like Noah did. We build up to those things. Why? Because perfect love casts out fear. Just turn momentarily with me to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. This is so good here. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. The Apostle John writes these words. And, and, and if you look at your heading back up there at verse 7, it says, God is love. And then chapter 5 begins overcoming the world. That's right where we're at. You understanding God is love and you having a faith that overcomes the world. Verse 16, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. How do we come to know that? The Spirit works, the Christ resides, it begins to build faith. We're rooted and grounded in it. God is love, verse 16, middle of it. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God and God in him. By this is love perfected within us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. As he has loved us, so also we can love like he did in this world. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. This is where action comes in, beloved, because we're beginning to understand the love of God, and that love is perfect. And because we're understanding that perfect love that he has for us, we can put away fear, put away fear of judgment, put away fear of this world, put away fear of death and dying and live for Christ in this world. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Jump down to verse 4 of chapter 5. Verse 4 of chapter 5. Now let's go back to three. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. No. They're just the opposite. They grow us. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes this world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. So the actions start off small. Much like a child first learning to walk. But then it gains an unlimited momentum because it's about faith, right? Right? You begin with actions to push away sin in your life, as I said. You begin then to move into actions to walk in obedience in your life. And then you begin to do actions to fulfill whatever God's calling is in your life. This is where you leave this world's reality and look to God's possibilities. This is where you let go of all that was behind you and all that stuff, that perfect love that you've never known yet until this day was holding you back from. 
Because you now understand perfect love and because perfect love casts out fear, you're ready to do these things. You're ready to push sin out of your life. You're ready to be obedient. You're ready to go out into this world and do what God has called you to do. This is where you leave reality and look to the possibilities of a God who is limitless in love and limitless in power. Because before you had a bottled up God that you judged as too small and not doing enough things in this world. But now you have a God that's different than that. You have a God that has limitless love and limitless power. I believe this is where Noah said, I'm going to build a boat. (laughs) I can't impress upon you enough how foolish that sounds to the people of his day. I'm going to build a boat, beloved, because it's going to start raining. You see, this is where you let go of judging everything by the world and your abilities by what you see and have done before this date in the world and grab a hold of the limitless love and power of God. It's infinite. If God calls you to build a boat and you're faithful to build a boat, you'll build a boat. It doesn't matter what your boat is in this life. And this is where you experience the love of Christ that goes beyond understanding and the fullness of God. Do you see that? This is your building a boat. This is your marching around a city seven times like Joshua did. And he told the people of Israel to shout and the walls of Jericho fell down and they sacked the city. This is your fearlessness to do what God has called you to do and where you experience the fullness and love of God. When you without abandon, when you without abandon of the fears of this life, Go after all the promises of God. You will experience the fullness of God's love that surpasses understanding. I've had different moments in my life where I've experienced that. One was the first trip I made to India. One was my first trip to a Planned Parenthood. One happened recently, a year ago, as we're going to celebrate it next month that I'd pack up my whole family and move to a place called New Jersey. Who would have ever done that? Right? Amen. Right. Thank you. I could tell you more. The school is another. You'll be surprised what God can do if you'll let go and trust him because he has the power. Why is it okay to trust and follow God? Because verse 20, do you see it there? Let's read that. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we think or ask. According to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. He is able. Do you see it there in verse 20? Now to him who is able. God is able. God is faithful. Not only is he able, but he is able to do far more abundantly. Do you see the words there, beloved? That phrase, oh glory. If we just understood the depth of that phrase, hypercapucio. I'll say it again. Hypercapucio. An extraordinary degree is what it's talking about, involving a considerable excess of whatever we could have imagined, no matter what that is, even though it's relative to each one of us, God can do exceedingly abundantly much more than that. Every time, extreme, extremely to an extreme degree, to a very great degree, God can do above and beyond. And this degree is dependent on the beginning phrase, He is able. That is that God is able. He has the power. He has the capacity. And I don't think that we often stop to think about God's power, but it is 
this linking of his power to his goodness that will make our hearts sore this morning as I've come to a close. It was Noah and the ancients that so fully grasped God's power. If you want to read about that, read Hebrews chapter 11. You have Abraham who was willing to go up on the Mount Moriah and sacrifice his son. You have Joshua who was willing to march around the city. Over and over again, the scripture tells us of the great power of God that went before these different men and women because they believed that God was able and they saw the goodness of God because of that. They, gave, they were given the ability to experience a love that surpasses understanding and the fullness, the breadth, the width, the height, the depth of God. Hold on, I just, I know. Isaiah chapter 40, just momentarily here, guys. Isaiah chapter 40, turn with me. While you're turning there, listen to this. Uh, the oceans, you guys already know this because I know you passed science class. Uh, the oceans cover 71% of the Earth's surface, right? About three quarters, that's what we were taught. That's close enough back in Missouri. Yeah, you can laugh at that. <laughs> you could throw a yard dart at it from there. That, that is equal to 352 quintillion gallons of water estimated. Okay, times what's water weigh? Uh, about eight pounds per gallon, right? Well, that's regular water. Seawater weighs more, about 8.55 pounds per gallon. What is that weight, Kevin? Do that math for us real quick in your head, right? What is the volume of that? It's unfathomable, isn't it? That's what my, the grains of sand on a seashore, God has thought good thoughts about you, it says in Psalms 139. Who can number that number? Who can understand the weight of that measure, the weight of that volume? The surface area of the earth is approximately 196,936,994 square miles. Of that, approximately 5,972.37 yottograms of volume. I don't know what a yottogram is. I looked at it, right? But there's a calculation that you can use, and I'd give that to you this morning, but you bang your head against the pew in front of you because it's a lot of weight. It's an unfathomable weight. But it gives us an inkling of God's power because look at verse, verse 12. I don't know how many 352 quintillion gallons of water is, but I do know the God who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. Do you go on and see it? And he's marked off the heavens with a span and enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and has weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. And not one thing this morning is out of place. Beloved, this is what you need to know about God's power. It is far more than you can possibly imagine. So much so that you consider it to the extraordinary degree, to an extreme degree, you'll still fall short of your understanding of it. That is an understanding his power, and this is the doctrine of omnipotence, as I said earlier. You need to understand that he can, as sovereign, can set the future as he wills it to be and then bring to pass everything that he wills to bring to pass. That's the perfect hope we have in God. And because his power is perfect, it is always good. 
He has the ability to bring it to pass all that he has willed. Put from an unlimited loving perspective, he can promise us salvation, but from an all-powerful perspective, he can accomplish the salvation that he has promised. Paul says, I'm not ashamed, for I know in whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what he has promised to me. God cannot lie, and he cannot do what is not logical or not right and not good. He cannot then create a rock too heavy for himself to carry or a square circle. These are not limitations, but indeed perfections of his all-powerfulness. They're more excellent understanding of his characteristics and of his unlimited power. His power always accords with what is right and what is good. And to see that, just look at human power. The saying is that absolute power corrupts absolutely in human beings, and it's easy to see that in our government, has the power within itself to do what is right and good, but will not. And the more power it has, it seems the more corruption But God cannot act like this. The more power of God, because he is unlimited, is the more of his power we understand, the more good we see in him. So just as I come to a close this morning, imagine yourself standing as one of the Israelites of the Red Sea. You had just saw all ten plagues in Egypt. And you had just walked out of Egypt about a day's journey. I think it says about three days' journey. And you come to the edge of the Red Sea and you believe you're in safety. And Moses is being lauded for the leader that he is. And God is being rejoiced and praised for the leader he is. But don't look too fast because when you turn around and look over your shoulder, here comes Pharaoh and his horde army directly at you. And the only thing between you and the Red Sea is Moses and his staff. Oh, is it time to wonder about the power of God for leading us out here as the Israelites did and saying, why have you brought us into this desert to kill us here? We've been better off to stay as slaves in Egypt. No, 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 that's not what happened. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. They were delivered that day because they saw the power of God and the love of God. John Stott writes this in Ephesians, about his comments on Ephesians. But then he turns from the love of God past knowing to the power of God past imagining. Paul writes from the limitless love to the limitless power, for he is convinced, as we must be as well, that only divine power can generate divine love in the divine society. This power comes from him. This glory must also go to him. You will never be disappointed in God, in following God or giving up your life for God. The disappointment will be that you didn't give enough, that you didn't believe enough, that you didn't give away your life enough on that day. It will never be that you gave too much. The more of him you see, the more love and power you experience. Beloved, it's an unlimited well, and we will praise, we will with all creatures who have breath in them, one day give him glory, do his name. Gracious Heavenly Fathers, we come to a close today. Father, my unending prayer is that your people would understand that you are unlimited in your love and the power that you have for us.
that as we understand you more and more through the power and the work of the Spirit in us, the more we see your power, the more we see your goodness to experience the height, the depth, the breadth, and the width, and the love that surpasses understanding. Father, that's this pastor's prayer for everyone listening today. It was Paul's prayer for them. Will you do that work in your people? Only you can do that, Father. Show them that ever-abundant, exceedingly great power as you love them and change them from what they were to what you would bring them to be. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, if the men will come.